Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger bigger ones. And then there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Thanks Tim. Monty, do you want to come up? We have an advisory team at Christ City Church that Leanne and I meet with formally twice a year and informally for lots of coffees and conversations. And Monty was just helping us with our wider leaders a couple of Saturdays ago. So Monty's been a great help and a great source of counsel and wisdom. And uh, he supports Man City, so things aren't going well this season, which is nice. Uh, so uh, we won't hold that against you. Better than Spurs. Uh, yeah, better than Spurs. Okay, so let me, uh, let me pray for you, Monty, and then I'll hand over. Father, we thank you uh, for Monty. We thank you for the parables in Luke's Gospel. We thank you that there's an invitation and a challenge in every parable. And uh, Lord, may we hear that invitation and may we respond to that challenge. And may the preaching of your word do us good today. In Jesus' name. Amen. The madness of more. The madness of more. I've always loved quiz programs. And so in a week when the Euro millions have... uh, reached 170 million jackpot. Let that sink in. It might be appropriate for you to tell, for me to tell you about one of my long-running dreams or fantasies. Back in the heyday when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was, was, was on the screens, I used to have this dream that I would manage to get on, manage to do the fastest finger thing and get up there, and I would refuse to engage in all the hype. I would just answer the questions. Next one, Chris. Next one. If I kept getting them right. And all this stuff about now you can keep the thousand or you can lose it or you can keep the 32,000 or you can lose it. I would just ignore it all and they would all, well, what are you going to do with this money? Give it away. Uh, And just go right the way through. And in my dream, in this fantasy, you know, I'm getting up to the 100,000, 200,000 and he's trying to say, now, are you sure you want to answer that? You could lose 32,000, and I'm going, well, I didn't have it before I came in here, so I'm not really losing it, am I? And um, I would carry on, and of course, I would get them, in the dream, I would get the million uh, dollar or million pound question right, and there'd be all this, all this stuff and all the fireworks and everybody dancing, and I'd just be sitting there, and they'd give me the money and say, what are you going to do with it? And I would say, give it away. Now, when I'm telling my wife this dream, she sort of goes, well, I was with you to that last sentence. <laughs> Um, maybe pay off the mortgage first and then give it away. But it was something just about, I loved the quiz, I loved the format, but there was something about the whole hype about the money that I just couldn't buy into. 
And maybe the reason I never had the chance to live out that fantasy is that maybe God wouldn't be able to trust me with that ridiculous amount of money. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, but I wouldn't mind if he would just take the risk on me. Uh, I'd like God to take the risk with me. But the reality is that the stories of big lottery winners, for example, are littered with tragedy. More than one documentary has been made following the fortunes of winners five to ten years on. It is almost universally a story of sadness, loneliness, lost friends, broken marriages, estranged children, alcoholism, addictions, depressions, and an uncannily high percentage of suicides. One of the most famous was in 2002, the winner of the American lottery from West Virginia, his photograph's going to come up, a guy called Jack Whitaker. And I read about his story a little bit when I was researching for this parable. And it is an absolute catalog of tragedies, of court cases, of arrests, and even of deaths. His granddaughter on the left there, beautiful 16-year-old girl, basically died within two years of overindulgence in drugs as a result of the un restricted access to money that she had. One friend said this, it was like the money was eating away at whatever good had been in him. It reminded me, she said, like Lord of the Rings, Gollum, you know, with his precious. It just consumes you. You become the money. You are no longer a person. And for Brandy, the granddaughter's friends, they said that the easy money proved corrosive to this small group of young people. It turned us to hell, said one of our friends. You didn't know who you could trust. When Brandy handed things out, she might be messed up and not even remember it the next day. One of her friends was the son of a school teacher. And he came to his senses and realized he was betraying all that he had been raised to value. He said, I turned into a different person. I had so much money, it turned me cold-hearted. Now that is the reality, and we can know it up here. And yet, who of us wouldn't like just a little bit more? One of my favorite proverbs is from the Old Testament book of Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. It's actually the saying of a guy called Agur, who we don't know anything else about. But he comes up with this real genius prayer. Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Apparently, when Jack Whitaker won the lottery, he was a likable church-going businessman. He promised to tithe and to rebuild the local church with all of his money. Uh, he ended up blowing up most of it in strip bars quite close to his home. Agar says, don't give me it because I might have too much and disown you, Lord, and say, who is the Lord? 
But if I have too little, yes, I might end up stealing and be forced into that sort of poverty and dishonor the name of my God. Just give me my daily bread. Do we really mean that? Could we pray that? Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Maybe we could have a little more. Maybe, maybe we could handle it. Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. That's how the story starts after the intervention from the, the guy who was questioning him. Watch out. Beware. Hazard ahead. Flashing lights. Be on your guard. And he tells a story. And it's a story that he tells in response to a question. It's just been asked by a member of the crowd to intervene in a family dispute. It seems on the surface that this guy had a genuine case. It's interesting that in the previous block of stories in Luke's gospel, we also begin with a family dispute between Mary and Martha. And Martha tries to enlist Jesus to take her side against her sister. And yes, it seems when you read the story that Martha had a point. But Jesus didn't intervene on her side either. And here Jesus is approached again. Now in this culture, if a man died without a will, the property would be left to the oldest son who would be expected to give any other siblings what was theirs by right. Now, this particular brother evidently hadn't done that. And so the wronged party, the brother, tries to enlist the help of Jesus. Now, particularly in Luke's gospel, Jesus is presented as the champion of the poor, the advocate for the oppressed, the herald of justice, the voice for the voiceless, and we, and obviously this man, would expect then Jesus to come down on the side of justice and fairness and give this guy what was rightfully his. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't get involved. What this man would have to learn is that Jesus is there to be followed, not to be used. Jesus is there to be followed not to be used. There is a danger in wanting to have God on our side. Why? Well, in refusing to get involved, is Jesus not condoning the injustice, you know? The only thing that it takes for evil men to prosper is for good men to do nothing, etc., etc. Well, yes, Jesus is the voice for the oppressed, but there's another phrase that occurs from time to time in the Gospels, and it is this, where the writer will say, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, or Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, dot, dot, dot. I think it's fair to presume that if Jesus was not going to speak up on this man's behalf, it must have been because he diagnosed underneath his question something that needed to be dealt with much more importantly than his legal rights. And the story he goes on to tell proves this. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't drag me into your family disputes if at the root of that dispute are simply two competing forms of greed. 
Don't ask me to get you your legal rights if all that that is going to do is make you more greedy and make me an accessory to your greed to satisfy some unhealthy desire. Is that harsh? Well, not if this man actually needed to be rescued from an oppression worse than financial injustice. Maybe in not going into bat for this guy, Jesus was actually serving his best interests, releasing him from the oppression of wealth, saving him from his rights so he could find something better. There's a danger to wanting or presuming that God is always on our side. Jesus taught this man that if he really did see him as teacher, as he addresses him, Rabboni, then Rabboni's are there to be followed, not to be used. Are we tempted to use him in our disputes? We tempted to use him for our causes, to use his name or try to enlist him through our prayers to take our side on things where we are so sure we are right. Or to make our love of him dependent on whether or not we pass the exam or get a life partner or are successful in our job interview. Maybe Jesus is looking underneath our questions and our prayers at our hearts and discerning the real reason why we're asking. Discerning the real reason we want him to be involved. I read recently the question, challenging. When was the last time you did something or refrained from doing something purely out of love for Jesus? Challenging. It certainly was for me. Maybe we want him to bolster our status, to vindicate us because we've been wronged or hurt, to help us to be appreciated more, to reward us for what we've been doing for him and so on. It's not the type of thing that Jesus wants to get involved in. Paul, I think, was aware of this when he rebukes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 for taking each other to court. Do you remember that? He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, they were suing each other, and Paul says, you're defeated already in the eyes of the unbelievers. What's going on in our hearts? The real question, you see, is not, is God on our side, but are we on God's side? So Jesus tells this story, and through this simple but powerful parable, he shows how stuff, as we call it, is to be shared, not stored. Stuff is to be shared, not stored. It's a short story, but there are significant repeated themes or phrases that embed themselves in our consciousness as we hear it read. One of those themes is excess, more. Verse 
verses 15, 16, 18, 19, we see phrases like this, an abundance of possessions, an abundant crop, bigger barns, surplus grain, plenty of grain, many years. You get the picture. Problem isn't that this man is wealthy. He was not responsible for the fact that his fields produced the abundant crop. That was a gift. His problem was that he was obsessed with more at every turn and that he wanted to use it for himself. Interesting that tied in with this theme is the utter sense, I wonder did you notice this, the utter sense of loneliness. There's nobody else in the story apart from God and him. No family, although they certainly existed. No servants, although a wealthy man like him would be bound to have more than a few. No workers for the field and the abundant crop. No community around him to bless with this abundance. And significantly, no friends. All these people would have been around, but he just lives as if they don't exist. In the culture, Decisions about what to do with one's business, when to build, plant, harvest, store, extend, all these decisions would have been made certainly in consultation with your family and probably actually in consultation with the wider community. But he makes the decisions by himself. About a dozen times in three verses, you have the first person, I, my, myself, he has nobody else to talk to. He is utterly alone. He makes plans for himself. He talks to himself. And all he can look forward to is eating and drinking and being merry by himself. What a saddle. And God passes the death sentence and says, right, what's going to happen to all the stuff now that you have stored for yourself? Because God's gifts are for sharing, not storing. Sometimes the gospel writers record phrases and turns of phrase and words specifically because they would ring bells for the audience. Uh, they would be familiar with the Old Testament scripture stories uh, we've already had one allusion. I've sort of passed over it in verse 14. Jesus says to the guy who was questioning him, who made me a judge or arbiter between you? Now that short phrase would have made his hearers immediately think of an Old Testament story in Exodus 2 concerning Moses. He finds two Hebrews fighting and he steps in and they say, hey, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Just a small thing. But Jesus throws out that exact phrase and leaves it hanging as if to say, hey, am I Moses? Of course, what he often did on similar occasions was to say, yes, there's a connection between me and Moses, but I am Moses in a much greater way than you could ever imagine. Replacing law with grace. And now here in this part of the story, this guy's talking about storing up stuff in barns. 
And one of the greatest Old Testament heroes made a name for himself by doing exactly that and saving whole nations. But unlike Joseph, this man is not sharing out the goodness he's storing it for his own use. Excess. More madness. Not content with the wealth he had. He wanted to get more. He wanted to build bigger. While ironically, all of this time, his world was getting smaller and smaller. And all that the bigger barns and excessive expansion would mean would be to highlight the fact that he was sitting in the middle of it all, all alone. His horizons never stretched any further. But he was content to make his plans, to have his dreams. Except for one problem. He never made it. The longed-for day of idle richness never materialized. The dream never happened. In hoping to take life easy, he forgot how easily his life could be taken. He had to learn the hard way that life is for enjoyment, not indulgence. Life is for enjoyment, not indulgence. Just as we saw that the problem wasn't his riches, but his excess, not what was his by right, but what he did with what he had, so too the problem here wasn't that he wanted to enjoy life. Life is to be enjoyed. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it, real life, more abundantly is the word he uses, to the full. Life is a gift from God and gifts are meant to be enjoyed. Gifts like food and drink and sex. So also riches and wealth to be enjoyed in the right context and in the right way. Good food, but not gluttony. Good wine, but not drunkenness. Sex, but not promiscuity. Riches, but not excess, selfish indulgence. The trouble is that wealth is a much crueler master than poverty. Scott Sauls, a writer I follow, writes this. Why would Jesus tell the rich ruler to give everything to the poor, but not also demand that from Abraham or Job? Because the rich ruler, he says, didn't really have money. Money had him. The man who thought he couldn't live without his money, in truth couldn't live with it. Madeleine Levine, a sociologist in a, in a recent book, said America's newly identified, and I think it applies across the board, newly identified at-risk group are pre-teens and teens from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of their economic and social advantages, children of affluence experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic complaints and unhappiness than any other group of children. 
22% of adolescent girls from financially comfortable families suffer from clinical depression. This is three times the national rate for that age group. Wealth is a much harder and crueler master than poverty. Here was the classic example of a guy who wanted all the gifts but no relationship with the giver. His point of reference never moved outside of himself what, what, and what he was going to do. He epitomized the attitude of the godless people in Isaiah, quoted by Paul, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And in his case, it was tragically true. Jesus paints a stark picture of the dangers and the poison of materialism. Wealth with no moral compass because we pin our hopes and our trusts on something that will not last. Life is not, he says at the start of the story, it is not on the abundance of our possessions. It's about a different sort of wealth. This man forgot that his riches were loaned to him. Most tragically of all, he forgot that his life was loaned to him. Life is fragile. And so if you think it is there just for you to indulge yourself rather than enjoy it as God meant you to enjoy it, you are, in the words of this parable, a fool, mad. You've succumbed to the madness of more. The story began with Jesus refusing to get involved, refusing to be a judge. But it ends with him reminding us that there is a time he will be involved and he will be a judge. He will be an arbiter. Suddenly, like a thief in the night. And he says to every one of his listeners then and now, this is how it will be. The story is bookended, if you like, start and finish, by two exclamations of Jesus. Verse 16 and verse 21. Watch out, this is how it will be. Warnings. It's not a comfortable parable. It's not meant to be. Gifts of God are not to be abused. Whether it is life, the most important gift we have, to all the lesser gifts of food, drink, possessions, and wealth, they're not to be used for ourselves. We are to be vigilant, says Jesus. Did you notice? About all kinds of greed. Because it comes in many guises. Don't be fooled. If you think this doesn't apply to you because you're struggling to make ends meet financially, greed has many disguises. Greedy for love in the wrong places, greedy for attention, greedy for fame, greedy for recognition, greedy for status, greedy for power. Watch out. For the end of this rich fool, that is how it will be if we make the wrong choices. Passage ends with two contrasting options on which we will be judged. How rich we are in reference to ourselves and how rich we are in reference to God. We saw at the beginning, Jesus has not been appointed a judge to fight our battles with our neighbors and family, but scripture tells us quite clearly he has been appointed a judge in an altogether different way. 
to judge how we have lived in relation to him. The parable does close with that choice. We're storing up for ourselves or we're rich towards God. How do we become rich towards God? How do we make heavenly investments? How do we store up treasures in heaven? Is Jesus just another Gandhi, live simply, serve others? The problem with that, you see, is it doesn't work. Greed is so insidiously part of our DNA that making a new resolution or trying to be a bit more generous here or there just won't cut it. Problem's too deep. The one thing that makes Jesus stand out, of course, is that he didn't just preach it. He embodied it. He was so rich, he made this farmer look like a pauper. He had all the wealth and power and status of heaven at his disposal, yet he gave it up. So before we can work out what we do with our wealth, let's first grasp what Jesus did with his. We can be changed from miserliness to generosity only because of the new power that is given us by the one who gave up everything who although he was rich for our sakes became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Through his spirit we have been given every spiritual blessing. All the riches of heaven are now at our disposal. That is the starting point from which we gradually are changed into people who are more and more generous. That's what will save us from the madness of more. Whether our bank account is a thousandth in the red or thousandth in the black, we all need this message. The thing that blew me away most of all about the tragic downward spiral of Jack Whitaker, the West Virginian lotto winner, was a little comment at the end of the story I read that, that said, that before he won the 300 million, he had been a good servant of the community, a likable business guy, whose net worth at the time was $17 million. He was already worth 17 million. And he could obviously live with that, except it obviously wasn't enough. You see, without an experience of an altogether different sort of wealth that only Christ offers, that spiritual wealth, without that experience, whatever we have, it never is enough. Jack Whitaker bought his lottery ticket at Christmas. The journalist who told his story in the Washington Post wrote this. That Christmas day in 2002, in convenience stores and gas stations across West Virginia, it was calculated that 15 people every second, 15 people every second commemorated Jesus' birthday by plonking down one dollar 
for a chance at a different sort of salvation. That's some sentence, isn't it? Celebrated Jesus' birthday, be plunking down a dollar for a chance at a different kind of salvation. Fifteen a second. I know which sort of salvation I would choose. Even if I ever did win, who wants to be a millionaire? Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And guys, that's the only abundance. That's the only excess worth going for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, this parable, and how it speaks to all of our hearts, because, Lord, there's not a day goes by when maybe we feel we could just do with a little bit more. If we want more, Lord, may it be more of you in our lives. May it be more of your spirit in our hearts. Transform us from those who think only of ourselves to those who, because they've been transformed by you, can bring real abundance and be channels of that abundant life to those around us. Amen.